Good morning, everybody. My name is Ian, and I come to share with you our Bible reading today from 1 Samuel, chapter 1, from verse 20 on to chapter 2 uh, to verse 11. That's 1 Samuel, chapter 1, uh, verse 20 to chapter 2, verse 11. And I'm reading from the New International Version. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord, For his whole life he shall be given over to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord 
under Eli the priest. Thank you, Ian. Good morning. Welcome. How are we? Excited to get into God's Word together? I hope so. I know I am. Uh, we are so glad that you're here. Great to see you today. I hope your January's going well and that you're feeling suitably relaxed and enjoying this uh, little bit of a cooler summer, I guess. Uh, my name is Jonathan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love to, to meet you. If Maybe we've met, but we don't really know each other. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, please take an opportunity, fill out a welcome card, uh, give us your information, and we would love to follow you up. Grab a coffee, uh, just share a little bit, get to, know one, get to know one another and hear what God's doing uh, in our lives. Um, we are working our way through uh, the book of 1 Samuel in a series called The Lord's Anointed. And uh, just to remind you why we're looking at this Old Testament passage. Thank you, Eddie, for taking us through. What do we like? Old Testament, New Testament. Um, why would we go through this since a majority of you don't like the Old Testament? as much as the new. Uh, the first reason is we want to set a baseline, set a baseline, uh, sort of revisit the fundamentals of our theology, right? You're, you're, you're only, your life's only as good as the foundation, and the foundation of what we know about God uh, is really established in this book. Uh, second reason is we want to locate the favor of God. God has been telling us since humanity left uh, Eden, he's been telling us that there is a good way and a bad way. <laughs> There's a good path and a bad path. We want to know where the favor of God is. The third reason is that as humans, we have this lust for power and control, and this book's going to help us sort of curb that appetite. And then finally, we want to learn to savor the presence of Jesus. And I hope that this uh, really comes uh, becomes a reality for you the more that we sit in this book. Um, we come this morning, uh, I'll come back to that later. Uh, as, we, as we come into this book, the title of this message is The Joy of Surrender. And if you've been following with us for the last couple weeks, you'll know that this story, which is going to tell us about kings and dynasties and reigns and, and all sorts of uh, uh, historical things, really important people, it starts with the story of a woman who was shamed because no one could really see her importance. Her name is Hannah. But Hannah, in the midst of her pain, we know she cried out to the Lord. She asked for a son, and she made a vow saying, God, if you give me this child, I will give it back to you. And last week, we finished by looking at how God had answered her prayer. And this story is going to sort of prompt a question for us. You know, what happens after you get the blessing? <laughs> Have you ever really, really wanted something, and then you get it finally, and you're sort of like, oh, what's next? <laughs> Maybe you had a relationship with somebody, uh, it could be just a friendship or somebody at work and you just, they, they were really key in your life and you needed something from them, but then after you got that thing, the relationship just kind of fell apart. You ever been in a situation like that? What's going on when we get in these situations like that is that we, we really, we don't want the relationship as much as we want what the relationship can bring to us. And this is a great text today because it's going to unpack for us what happens after the blessing. <laughs> and I'm going to start with kind of a challenging question, but I think it's an important question for all of us. And that is, how can we tell if we love God or we just love what he does for us? 
How can we tell if we love God or if we just love what he gives to us? I'm not saying there's a problem with loving what he gives to us. God is praised for his good gifts, and we're to remember that absolutely. But sometimes, I don't know if you feel this way. I've definitely felt this way. My prayers feel a little more like trying to find the right combination on the vending machine, right? Okay, God, I want, I want blessing C number 21. Oh, man, I meant to push 20. Goodness gracious, God, why did you give me that one? I don't know about you if anybody else can relate to that, but sometimes our prayer life can, it can feel that way. It's like, God, what do I have to say or what do I have to do to get the right blessing to drop from the dispenser so that I can enjoy it? And as, as much as I, I don't want to say that I do that, I know I do. I know I do. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. I don't know. Uh, but... Either way, it's good to know how you can tell the difference. If we love God uh, for himself or just we just love what he gives to us. Um, the big idea today is that those who come to love God, they've learned the joy of surrender. You, you know you've come to love God. You know that it's about the relationship with God if you've come to learn the joy of surrendering. And, and what you're going to see here is someone, Hannah who lived that. We have an opportunity this morning to watch someone who has surrendered. We get to see what happens after the blessing, after Christmas morning, and, and all, the, all the presents have been opened and all the wrappings put away. We get to see how does she relate to this God after she is given what she wants. And I, I hope you'll come to see that those who uh, ha those who love God have learned the joy of surrender. Well, that's where we're going this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, turn in 1 Samuel chapter 1. We'll, we'll finish the last bit of chapter 1, verse 21 to 28, and then we'll jump into Hannah's song at the beginning of chapter 2. But right now, uh, would you pray with me as we uh, come before the Lord? Father, we've sung praises to you already, Lord. We've, we've declared that you have great love for the world and Father, we confess that oftentimes our love can grow cold. Lord, you said it would be this way as we approach the end. But Lord, that's not our desire. Our desire is to be like those virgins whose lamps were lit, who were waiting for the groom. Lord, we pray that uh, we would be those who have a fire and a passion and a true love for you. Lord God, would you reveal more of your goodness to us today? May we see it clearly, not just with our eyes. May we not just understand it with our minds, but with our hearts. May we know and enjoy and appreciate your person, who you are and what you do for us. Teach us this morning through your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. I'm going to put these on so I can see. <laughs> Uh, if, you, if you need a Bible, uh, feel free to grab one out of the, uh, put your hand up. Someone will walk around, they'll give you one. If you don't have a Bible, you can download one on your app if you have a smartphone. If you don't have a smartphone, I don't know what to say. I, I, I want to meet you. <laughs> I've met too many people with that one. Uh, a bit of an outline this morning. Where are we going? Uh, Hannah's love for the Lord, you're going to see it's displayed by what happens after the blessing. And there's really just two parts. There's the act of surrender. The act of surrender, verses uh, 21 to 28, and then the experience of joy. And I want you to see this morning how these things go hand in hand. But as we do this, I, I would be not doing my job <laughs> if I didn't point out to you what's going on in the larger context, the larger context of this book. 
You see, just like any good story, any good piece of literature, there is something called foreshadowing. And what you read at the beginning is establishing for you categories and lenses, ways for you to view what's going to happen later. The same is true in 1 Samuel. And this morning, uh, we're just going to point out along the way how Samuel is foreshadowing two answers to a key question, which is, who is the Lord's anointed? And we're going to see in chapter 1 how the author is hinting that maybe this guy Samuel is probably the true soul, and ultimately that God will anoint his king. So those are just two themes. Now, if that's over your head, don't worry about it. We're just going to stick with this. This is the main thing you need to remember. But for those of you who would love to dig deep and want to sort of go a few layers down, uh, be watching for these two things as we go through God's word. All right, join me. Verse 21, when, when her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. So notice the, the, the child has been born, and we know that the family routine continues. They make their way to the temple. Elkanah is going to fulfill his vow. He's going to celebrate and make his sacrifice. But Hannah doesn't go this time, and she doesn't go because she's not ready to bring Samuel yet. Now, we know that uh, from other, other literature from this time, you can reasonably stay, say that it was about at the age of three that, that most children would be weaned at this day and age. A child wasn't weaned until about the age of three. And so the, the implication is she's going to miss a few, of these, a few of these visits. So Hannah doesn't go. She wants to wait till after he's, he's weaned. Verse 23, do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you've weaned him only. Only may the Lord make good his word. Elkanah, I, I love this. He's sort of, this is a great answer. You know, we sort of, we sort of jibed him a little bit. Uh, we, we jibed him a little bit last week about sort of what he was saying to Hannah in the midst of her pain. Uh, but here, he understands that God's doing something in the life of his wife. And, and, and he, he, he says, look, I see what's going on. I see that there's something really special happening here. You do what seems best to you. He doesn't get in the way of that. Stay here until you've weaned him. And his prayer is that the Lord would make good on his word. This presumably is the word that Samuel the priest, uh, Eli the priest, excuse me, had said that, you know, when she comes back, the Lord would give her a child. Verse 24, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. I find that kind of ironic, given that she was, uh, she was uh, interpreted as being uh, drunk while she was praying. Uh, but she brings a wine as an offering, which was an acceptable offering. Uh, and she brings him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said, Pardon me, Lord, surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. It's been a few years, right? It's been a few years. She says, I'm that woman. Remember that? I stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. She makes good on her vow. Sometimes the hardest part with our vows is not speaking them, it's keeping them. <laughs> Here is Hannah. She's gone through this experience. She finally gets a child. Her own body 
is the vessel that God uses to bring this life into the world. She raises him, nurtures him, weans him, and then she is ready to let him go. We cannot underestimate the act of surrender that she does here. It's so tempting, isn't it, when we make a vow to God, we make a promise to God to, to say, well, as long as I still am happy with the deal that I made, I'll go ahead and I'll, I'll, I'll honor that request, Lord. But you don't get that sense with Hannah. She is not balking in any way. She has a desire to keep the word to, her word to the Lord. I apologize. I didn't go through this as I, as I read. Um, but you would have heard it twice now. <laughs> so we come to this part, and, and, and we see that Hannah is engaging here in an act of surrender. She's surrendering the blessing that, that God had given to her, the thing that she had asked for. So after she's given the son, she keeps her vow, and she returns him to the Lord. And what I want you to see here is that the heart behind the promise is revealed in the keeping of the vow. You see, it's one thing to say something, to make a pledge, to make a promise, but the heart behind it, the spirit in which that promise is made, is only going to be shown in the keeping of the vow. How many people have professed love to another? How many people have made vows to say, for instance, until death do us part? Now, there's all sorts of reasons mostly because we're sinners, we fail to honor those vows. But this is a text that makes you stop and consider, how do we know the heart behind a pledge that's given? And I, I suggest to you that the heart of Hannah is revealed in her willingness to keep the vow. When she stood before the Lord, she wasn't just a woman in pain saying, God, make me comfortable. She wasn't just saying, can you put an end to the bad situation and give me the good times? She was a woman who's saying, God, it was you. I need your favor. I need you to look upon me. I need you in my life. I need you to define who I am. I need you. I need to know not just the blessing, but the one who blesses, you see. And the proof of that is that when the time comes for her to keep her, her vow, she does. How better would our marriages be <laughs> if we had the mindset that when we professed our love to another and we made a vow to another, we weren't simply expressing a feeling in a moment, but we were actually, before God, entering into a covenant that he would preside over. I've had the blessing of witnessing some beautiful Christian men and women go to great lengths to honor their vow before the Lord. Not because the relationship got better or because it got easier. Not because life was more comfortable now that they knew that blessing, but because they trusted in the one before whom they made the pledge and the commitment. I encourage you to find those people. They're out there. Get to know those people. And while I've talked about marriages, there's all sorts of vows and commitments that we make. Here we see that the heart behind the promise is, is revealed in the keeping of the vow. And 
And trust is what makes surrender possible. There's all sorts of surrender. You, you can be stopped by uh, the police and you can be forced to surrender <laughs> some objects or some items. Uh, there, there's a forcible surrender that, that can take place. Uh, but here it's a voluntary surrender. And voluntary surrender, we might look at this story and say, why on earth would, would someone do this? How can you leave a child with a priest? Now, today that has a very, that does a very, a lot of alarm bells go off when you hear that. But the sense here is that she's not leaving him simply with a man. She's leaving him with the Lord. And I encourage you that surrender only becomes possible where there's trust. It's a voluntary surrender because Hannah recognizes that God is trustworthy and he is good. Ultimately, she can say, I am, I am loving my child because I am committing him to the one who will care for him better than no one else ever can. And so we have her act of surrender. I want to ask you today, is God calling you to surrender anything? Was there a vow you made? Was there a pledge or a promise? Was there a blessing that you asked for and maybe you found yourself like Jacob making, trying to make a deal with the Lord? Is there a way or a commitment that God is calling you to honor him, to be someone who keeps their word? And if that's difficult, if that's difficult, two things I think might bring it into clarity for you. Number one, you need to recognize what is God asking you to honor? What is God asking you to honor? There's some people that get into uh, relationships that become abusive, employment arrangements that become abusive. They can get caught in that cycle of being oppressed by somebody else, and they can, they can remain there because they said, well, I said I would. But covenants and contracts can be broken. And I don't believe that God calls us by a demand to keep broken contracts and broken covenants. It's important to remember. So as you're thinking about your commitments and what you've made and what you've honored, ask yourself, what is the Lord asking me to honor? And then ask yourself, ask yourself, who am I trusting in this situation? What is the Lord asking me to trust him with? I probably just made things a whole lot less clear than I intended, but <laughs> hopefully you see what's going on in this story. Hannah keeps her vow. We move to the next part where Hannah experiences joy. She, then Hannah prays and says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the, the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. For I delight in your deliverance. Hannah's experience, which we've been watching from afar, which has stretched over a number of years, it comes to a culmination in this prayer. And, and, and if you're following the story just from a narrative perspective, she's given the child, she brings the child, she fulfills her vow, and what results is not some lament. She's not walking home thinking, oh, man, I can't believe I had to do that. Oh, this is so terrible, dragging her feet. No, it's a joyous experience. She's excited about it. Why? Because, she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. 
This is all about God. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. Now, that phrase, it's not a phrase we use, you know. You don't walk around to people and say, oh, I see your horn is lifted high today. That's uh, good for you, you know. It's, uh, things really seem to be going well, you know. What do I mean by the horn is lifted high? Probably what's best, best way to unpack this is to look at the animal kingdom, right? And, and in the animal kingdom, we know there's certain animals that, that have horns, that have uh, this, this sign of their strength. And if you think about an animal that's been in a contest or been in a fight, right, they've often prevailed through the use of this, their strength, these, these horns. And so the image in that day of a horn was a, was a regal image. It was, it, was a, it was sort of a royal image, strength, power, might. And the idea is that the idea was that if your horn was lifted high, you were victorious. And so she says, in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. You know, there is a place for those who have been speaking lies and speaking falsehood to be shown to be wrong. <laughs> We might look at Hannah as gloating here, but I want you to see the connection that is made. She says, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. And I would suggest to you as Christians, you can have a joy in your salvation. You can have a joy and a delight in, in knowing God and, and having an abundant life and a secure future. Some people take this the wrong way and they go around to other people and, and, and they start lording it over them as if they are somehow better than they were. Really, the better, <laughs> the better way is just to simply delight in the Lord. Let the joy that you have in God be a testimony to the world around you. That's enough of a triumph in itself. To know God and to love him, to have an experience and a connection, a relationship with, with your creator and the peace that that brings, that will be enough of a boast you don't need to somehow say, you know, let me tell you about those five days I spent fasting this week, you know. That was really, uh, that was really the kicker, you know. Have I told you how long I spend on my knees in prayer every day? Yeah. You know, as I was reading the Bible for the fifth time this year, I, I uh, came across something really interesting, you know. We have these sort of humble brags that we sort of insert into our Christian testimony uh, as if we need to somehow show them, like, look, being a Christian is good, but if you want to be a Christian, you should really do it my way. When all we need to do is simply just say how great God is. Oh, you seem to be a little bit different. Don't tell them about your diet. Don't tell them about, you know, what what podcast you're listening to, what preacher, you know, you go, don't even, I mean, you can tell them what church if they want to come, but like, but, but just, just delight in the Lord. Let that be a boast. Let that be your glory. Paul would say, he, he, he would say, I boast in Jesus Christ. He is my boast. This is Hannah. She's delighting. She's gloating a little bit because she delights in God's deliverance. But she switches the focus from here on out. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. 
The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. As we get into verse 4, the, the, the theme seems to switch to this great reversal that God does, whereby God takes things that shouldn't prevail and he makes them prevail. Where God takes the meek, the lowly, the oppressed, and he turns them into the victorious, the conquering, the enriched. And it's something that only God can do. And here she ushers in in verse 4. The bows of the warrior are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. You know, we're used to these CGI battles in Middle Earth, and we, uh, you know, we, we, watch, we watch medieval fighting, and, and, you know, you get the archers out. And I want you to imagine a CGI scene where, where one line of soldiers just starts running, and they're tripping before they can even get three feet ahead of the line. And meanwhile, you got all the archers and their bows and their arrows, and they're, they're, they're standing there. They're ready. They're just ready to unleash. And they fire, and they all miss. This is the picture that Hannah's seeing in her mind. She gets more specific and a bit more personal. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. That, that, that's a bit personal. She knows that one. But the picture here is someone who has so much and yet is not content. So much food yet has to go work in the field and labor because they don't have enough to eat. And yet the one who is hungry seemingly having plenty. The one who has seven sons is pining away, feeling like she's missing out. But the one who was barren, the one who is barren is born seven children. So this great reversal that is underway. And then in verse 6 and 7, she begins to attribute why this happens. This happens, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. Hannah looks through time and all of human circumstance, and she says, if you want to know the secret to who wins and who loses, it's the one that God chooses. Ultimately, the Lord is the one who is in control. She looks across the span of history and time and says, God is the one. God enriches. God brings low. Some people are raised up. Some people are brought down. Nebuchadnezzar found this out. If you read the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar built this great statue and monument to himself and his greatness. And within a matter of moments, God sends him insane, and he's out like a, like a cow, in the pasture of his, master, of his massive palace, and he's just chewing grass. You know, God can do that to any of us. God can send any of us low in any moment. We really ought to be very careful to whom we attribute success, to whom we attribute victory, to whom we uh, attribute abundance. And yes, God uses people to bring these things. Yes, God gives people skill and wisdom and, and, and absolutely. But Hannah cuts through all of this. She looks across it all and she says, God has this way of just turning things around, doesn't he? He has this way of taking the thing that shouldn't live and making it live. Taking the thing that should succeed and making it, shouldn't succeed and making it succeed. And God is the one to whom she attributes this. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. If you read this song, Mary 
in Luke's gospel, you could tell she'd meditated on this song. She'd listened to this song because she's borrowing some of Hannah's words as she gets the visit from the angel. And she realizes by some mystery of divine providence that she will bear the Messiah. Imagine that happened to you. Imagine God came to you and he's going to do the impossible. What song comes to your head, comes to your mind? Is it we will, we will rock you? Is it that? No, no, no. We are the champions? No. <laughs> she thinks of this song. Yes, God, that's right. You're the one who brings the needy from the, from the ash heap. You're the one who, who brings down and raises up. She gives the reason at the end of this verse, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On him, he, on them, he has set the world. You see, it's all anchored in God as the creator. God as the, as the, the one of one. God is the author and sustainer of all life. That's the basis. The foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He made it. He has a right to govern it how he wishes, and it is to our great delight that he happens to be a wonderful God. Verse 9, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants. Thank you, Lord. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. And if you've spent any time in 1 Samuel, you can't read this song and not think, hold on here, I think, I think this, is, this seems to be foreshadowing some events that are going to come. This seems to be pointing at things that are about to happen in this book. It doesn't matter how strong you look or how strong you are. You know, we're going to watch a shepherd boy take on a giant. We're going to watch the king shaking in his boots, trying to strap his armor to the kid, and the kid's going to say, I, I can't wear this. <laughs> we're going to watch him pick up five smooth stones off the ground and topple a giant. But here, as we listen to Hannah exulting in joy, as we listen to her singing this song, we hear her saying, you know, those who oppose the Lord are going to be broken, and it's not by strength that somebody prevails. Do you believe that? Do you believe this? Is this your outlook as you approach your life? Do you believe that knowing the Lord is the single most important thing? That your fate, that the fate of those you love is entirely determined, held in the hands of this God? Or in some corner of your heart are you hedging your bets? In some corner, are, are, you, are you squirreling away these, these little acorns of, of your own strength and saying, well, 
God, I'm going to walk with you this far, but, but, but I, I brought my little travel pack with me. So in case I need to go my own way, I at least have a nice little lunch and I should be able to make it to the next town. Do we believe this? Knowing the Lord is the most important thing. I love what the prophet Jeremiah says, chapter 9, verse 23. He says, let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let the strong man boast in his strength. No, do not let the wise man boast in his wisdom. Do not let the, the, the strong man boast in his strength. But let the one who boasts boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord. You know, we stand in front of the mirror, we primp and we crimp and we, we pull and we wash and we, you know, and we shop and we, and, and we do all these things to, to, to sort of robe ourselves in a bit of human cachet. When in reality, the best thing you can clothe yourself with is the knowledge of Christ, is knowing the Lord. First and foremost, it's by that that you will prevail. And it may look like you're losing to everybody else. She finishes her song with this, the most high will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Notice it's future tense. This hasn't happened yet, all right? And we're still waiting. There will be a day when everything will be put to rights. Everything will be decided just as it should be. And then she finishes with a very strange comment. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Here's that horn language again. But what's weird about this is she talks about God's king, but they don't have a king yet. Now, it's not, it's not entirely out of nowhere because... Moses gave them in the book of Deuteronomy. He said, look, when you get a king, <laughs> he predicted that it was going to happen. And we read the book of Judges, which was, which was written about the time that's sort of concurrent to this, that, that you know, there was no king in Israel. So we have this idea that there's kingship in the air. There's an appetite for royalty. There's an appetite for someone who's going to lead them into battle. The people are looking around at one another saying, you know, I don't know if I can trust a God that I can't see. I really want somebody who looks like me to lead me into battle. I want somebody who can represent me and my people. That's what they're looking for. And even though there's not even one there yet, Hannah makes a prophetic declaration that I would suggest summarizes the point of the resurrection. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. By the Spirit of God, Hannah looks through time and realizes that God's going to pick somebody who is his king. And that person will receive the strength of the Lord, the same Lord who decides all this stuff, the same Lord who turns everything upside down. And if you're a Christian here today, you understand that Hannah is talking about Jesus. This this far-off prophecy has been given much more color, much more definition through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Elkanah goes home to Ramah, the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest, and that's where we'll pick up the story next week. 
I want to talk about experience of joy. Hannah's return to Samuel, uh, return of Samuel to God, it sparks an outburst of joyous praise. What I want you to see is how her act of surrender creates a platform to behold God's greatness. And so she cannot help but testify. What do I mean by this? She has abandoned everything to God. She's in a position of desperation. And it's in that position of desperation where she's put all her eggs in his basket. That that act of surrender, what it actually does is it constructs a platform. It constructs a lookout. You know, one of my favorite lookouts around here is you drive up to Springwood or, you know, Hawkesbury Heights, whatever that is. You drive up there. There's a great lookout, and you can just see so far. That's what that act of surrender does. When you put all your eggs in God's basket, when you lean and depend upon him wholly, it gives you a platform from which to view his greatness. And if you've known the Lord for a while, I hope I see some heads nodding. You don't really, you haven't really put yourself in a place to glimpse God and all his goodness and his glory and his holiness if you haven't desperately put yourself before him. If he's still sort of in, in the distance, if he's like, hey, saw what you did over there. That's awesome. Man, Mount Everest, that's pretty cool. That's awesome that you made that, God. That's great. You know, oh, wow, look at that. If you're looking at God from a distance and saying, oh, boy, pretty cool stuff, that's entirely different than saying this life this, this existence, this breath, this day, this moment, this relationship, this job, this bank account, this, this special treasure that I have been given, I'm going to let go of it, and I'm going to leave it in your hands, God. I'm going to leave my grandkids to you. I'm going to leave my kids to you. You see, idols are so dangerous not just because it makes you worship something that isn't God, but because it blinds you from seeing who God really is. And whenever we're worshiping an idol, what we're doing is we're, we're clutching to something. And we're saying, God, I'm not going to open my hand. I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to let you have it. I'm not going to just abandon myself, empty myself before you. But the whole note of this is joy. This is not a lament. This is not a song that's, that's meant to be played with a dirge or in a minor key. This, this is a song that's, that's exciting. She's happy. And I think so much of the Western church should be confronted by this psalm. Because this is a woman who emptied herself and is happy about it. She's actually very excited. She's not talking about all the things that she has in her life. She's talking about the Lord. It's as if almost by some weird thing, he's all she has in her life. And even weirder, it's as if though, she's all, though he's all she has, she couldn't be happier about it. What's the difference? Love. Love makes surrender joyful. 
And I want to come back to, to, <laughs> to this illustration of marriage for a moment, right? You've all been to a wedding, and, and you, you stand up there, you, you, you look at the bride and groom. Maybe you haven't been to a wedding. If you haven't, you get two people at the front, they're about to make vows, right? Uh, and, and they're standing there, and they're looking at one another, and you watch them, and they're just adoring one another, right? And the cynical among the group look at them and say, oh, that'll, that'll last a week, you know? But why do we keep coming back? Why? What is so compelling about that? You say, well, look, I value my relationships and my social network's not going to benefit if I don't go to weddings. So da, 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 da. But admit it. There's a part of you, when you show up at a wedding and you watch the two at the front, and you see them in a moment just wrapped in one another, and you hear them take a vow that effectively says, I give myself to you. And the other person says, and I give myself to you. No strings attached. In that moment, you say, this is absolutely beautiful. Why? Because you watch them do the hardest thing that it is often hard for us to do, which is to give up control, and you watch them do it willingly. You watch them do it joyfully. Why? Because they love. They love. Trust makes surrender possible. Love makes surrender joyful. Love makes surrender a delight to do. Walter Brueggemann, again, great, very insightful commentator on this. Speaking of Hannah's song, he writes, this song becomes a source of deep and dangerous hope in the world wherever the prospect and possibility of human arrangements have been exhausted. When people can no longer believe the promises of the rulers of this age... When the gifts of well-being are no longer given through established channels, this song voices an alternative to which the desperate faithful cling. I hope you hear that. You might feel like you got nothing. There is nothing left. And your loved ones might be looking at you like, oh, man, I'm just really sorry. Your life, your life stinks. And maybe no one truly gets it but you're having to live it. This song is a defiant slap in the face to that hopeless thinking. It says, oh yeah, but you don't know Yahweh. You don't know my God. If you're faithful, cling to this. The Joy of Surrender, Hannah's uh, song, it lets on more than perhaps she knew because her song points us to Jesus. I've already told you how, how Mary's song exhibits this joy. It was God himself who would give up his son. And it was the son who would empty himself so that he could become the living one who conquers death. See, the Bible, though it has many stories, it's telling you one story. It's telling you a story of Jesus Christ. And so I want to finish with just a brief reading from Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? 
For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels. Then he will reward each person according to what they've done. What we have Jesus uttering here is an invitation to surrender. You say, what if I don't love God like this? I don't think I can be a Hannah. I don't know that I could actually ungrip my fingers. I don't think I could actually surrender and, and, and embrace a life like this. Well, you're not alone. I think we're all in that boat. But the good news is there was one who did. There was one who had perfect surrender, and that was Jesus, and that's what he did on the cross. In Jesus, God kept his promise to bless the world. He kept his vow. I was reading recently. After Abraham was tested by offering his own son Isaac, God said to him, he said, Abraham, I will bless you. I will bless all the nations through your offspring. He did it. But notice what Jesus says here. He says, those who, those who wish to keep their life will lose it, but those who lose their life for my sake will find it. And so my final word to you this morning is that surrender is not a way of life. It's the way to life. If you've listened to me this morning and you thought, well, Jonathan, you know what? If I ever get in a bad spot, I think, I'll, I, think I might go back and I might pull this out. If, if things get tough, you know, I can see that's a way to go. Uh, that, 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 that's a possible path. You know, and I get for those who are down on their luck and, and, and who don't have much and those who, who are really tough that, yeah, by all means, abandon everything to God. And I really hope that they can experience this joy that you're talking about. But as for me, I don't think I'm there yet. And, and frankly, I'm kind of waiting because I seem to be doing okay. I seem to be getting along just fine. Yeah, maybe it's not as good as it could be. But, you know, frankly, I don't think I've done a bad job managing my life so far. I can't control these other people around me, but with the, with the hand that I'm dealt, I'm playing it pretty well. If you've heard me this morning say surrender is a way of life, you missed it. Surrender is the way to life. It's the way to joy. That's what Jesus said. Why else would you take up a cross? Why else would you, would, you, would you willingly turn from whatever it was that you were doing and enjoying and, and follow this Jesus? Only if there was joy. But if you're someone who balks at surrender, if you're like, ooh, I got to surrender, oh, I don't know if I can do that. If that's you, let me encourage you, it'll be all right. All you'll ever need is found in Jesus. You'll find it there. You'll find it in him. Don't despair. Don't worry. Jesus said whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. In another passage, he says that life about that life. He says you'll have it to the full. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we're grateful that we have modeled for us your character to answer prayers, to turn things upside down, to make the impossible possible. 
Father, I don't know what impossibilities my brothers and sisters have this morning, but I pray that we would find delight in worshiping at your feet, knowing that there is nothing that you can't do. Thank you that Jesus surrendered perfectly because we couldn't. Thank you that it's only by his blood and by trusting in his name that we can have eternal life. May you pour it out abundantly among us, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.